trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, listen, I'm glad you could join me today. In fact, uh, I want to start off with something here. I'm going to omit the name here because I've not asked this individual for permission to use his name, but uh, I got an email from a listener and I just, I can't tell you how much this lifted my heart because this perfectly encapsulates why I do what I do day in and day out. And, and look, if I can be really honest with you, I'm just going to admit there are times when I just kind of struggle with the idea of, does anybody really care? Is anybody even listening? Or is this just me, blah, 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 going on, you know, and, you know, getting stuff off my chest and saying things, and uh, is it really making any kind of a difference? Then I hear from this uh, this dear listener who, who says, look, I have a desire for truth and freedom, and he says, I first realized how, how shamelessly the corrupt politicians are when Trump was going <clears throat> through his first impeachment, but he says, before that, I really wasn't that interested in politics. I thought others had the best of intentions for me and my fellow countrymen and women, and he says, you know, when, when that realization came, he felt utterly lost. Now, I suspect there are more than a couple of you that are nodding your heads going, oh, wow, I've, I've been there. I know I have felt that as well. I remember waking up to the idea and realizing, oh, my gosh, you know, I was, I was raised to trust. Well, government's here to help us. It's, you know, it's, it's here to serve us. And then at some point, my eyes opened and I went, Actually, it's it's a pretty dangerous uh, it's a pretty dangerous entity. There's a reason the founders had a profound distrust of government. They viewed it as a necessary evil. And that's why they put very strict limits on its powers and carefully defined its role lest it start to get out of control like a fire. Now this listener says, "Look, I didn't know what to trust at that point or who could help me gather an accurate worldview devoid of bias or ill intent." So here's what he did. He says, "I decided to keep as open a mind as, as possible." And listen to the feeling I had in my soul. And, and he says, so far in my journey of becoming the best man I can be, that practice has not led me astray. I've become a very spiritual human being focused on truth and personal sovereignty for all. That's it. That's, I, that's why I do what I do. Not because I'm the hero here. I'm not. I'm just, I'm speaking to those people who are having that recognition that, wow, I've come to the conclusion things are not right. My eyes are opening and I'm realizing the system around us is is incredibly corrupt. What can I do? Especially when the system has kind of programmed us to, to feel broken or useless or unable to act without its permission or its license. And and again, I just I I'm not gonna name this listener's name because I have not obtained permission from him to do so, but I so appreciated that email because that is exactly the kind of person that I am reaching out to with this little show that I do each day. I'm trying to help those people who are having that awakening, who realize, yeah, it's not right. What's going on right now is is not the way things were always supposed to be, and I'm just out of touch with everybody else. But the fact that uh, he approached it with an open mind and especially with a desire to listen to that feeling in his soul. 
It hasn't led him astray, and it, it won't lead you astray. It takes humility, by the way, to do this. It's not a not a matter of thump your chest certainty. Yep, I know everything that needs to be known, and nobody can tell me what to do or what to think. Sometimes, you know, freedom is portrayed as selfish. In fact, it's often portrayed as selfish. That's why you're not supposed to embrace it. What are you, some kind of radical? But it takes a lot of humility and not a small amount of courage for someone to go, wow, what can I do? I, I know now that I don't know a lot of stuff. I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to discern, which is really the toughest part. I mean, I can't think of another time in my life. And I, I mean, I have been paying close attention for at least the last 30 years. And I can't think of another time when I've had to, to fight more of an uphill battle against fact checkers and algorithms and highly paid blow-dried spinmeisters, you know, telling me what to think. This is what you're allowed to think. And I'm sure that you feel it too. So if, if that's too much, if that's like, whoa, hey, <laughs> uh, that's not what I, you know, clicked play to hear, um, it's okay. I don't think that you're a bad person or I don't think that you're dumb. Hey, what do you mean you don't want to listen to me? Come back, come back here, you know. Um, some people just aren't ready to face that kind of truth. But there are people who are. God bless this listener who who did it and is doing it on a day-to-day basis and not just, you know, sitting back and, and trying to, to look at it from the standpoint of, well, you know, oh, wish somebody would tell me what to do, but to really try to figure it out for himself. What can I do? How can I best approach this? This is the way. If I could borrow a quote from the Mandalorian, this is how it's done. We've, we've got to find the courage to make our own feet start to move. And when you do, when you can humble yourself enough, and I, I'm going to say this just plain and clear, when you humble yourself enough to ask God for help in doing so, you'll be amazed at the help that comes your way. And oftentimes it's going to come your way in the form of people whose path intersects with yours at this remarkably amazing time. It's just, I'm sure it's just a big cosmic coincidence, or or is it? At any rate, that's a very long-winded way of saying thank you so much for being part of the show, and uh, and thank you for being someone who values truth above comfort. You know, the comfortable lies that politicians will tell you, or just the comfortable lies that we might be tempted to tell ourselves in order to not have to commit to something that's kind of scary. I want to, in fact, I'm going to just touch on this one just right up front. I was going to share this later in the show, but uh, J.B. Shirk, writing for AmericanThinker.com, has a marvelous essay called Resolve to be Undefeated. And he talks about how as the world becomes more dangerous and uncertain, there are two kinds of human responses that often surface. There are those that are who are so understandably distraught by quickly unfolding events, seemingly beyond their control, that they just throw their hands up in exasperation, fearing that all is lost. And then there are those who, having recently awakened to the daunting issues surrounding us or having been stewing in their juices for years, waiting for others to take notice of what's going on, now find a fire in their bellies as an energetic determination takes hold. And he encourages us, find your way toward that second camp. Now listen to what he says here. He says, it's not that I have unwavering optimism that all will be well. It's that I know that the more of us who accept reality for what it is, and then proceed to tackle it accordingly, the more quickly we will achieve our goals. Even the most demoralized among us know this to be true. He says, I've never met anyone who says, and then the global deep state will take control and hold all power over the rest of humanity forever. Nobody worried about the collapse of the West believes that those doing the demolition will be permanently victorious. 
Government tyranny is nothing new. Evil disguised as part of a false state religion regularly returns. Loss of liberty and the spread of slavery are regrettably routine. But he also says, People are depressed today not because of encroaching totalitarianism succeeding behind the camouflage of the West's politically correct. We're all in this together, or we must protect democracy, or the planet is dying, or everything is racist, manipulative pablum. The reason they're depressed is because they know how much hard work will be required to dredge all this evil hokum from society, to liberate the masses, and find victory in the midst of retreat. It's the size of the gargantuan task before us that's intimidating, not some belief in certain defeat. Once you recognize that distinction, once you accept that no matter how heavy the load we must bear or how long the road we must travel, there is a path to success, then the real challenge becomes executing a vision of our better future and not perpetually mourning the burial of our trampled past. As with many challenges worth pursuing, the most difficult step is changing one's state of mind to that of a warrior. Oh my gosh, I love what he's saying here. He's right. You know, it's, it's, in fact, I'm going to go into some more detail here in the, in the next segment. I'm going to share a little bit more from uh, J.B. Shirk's column, but I, I have to, I have to point this out. Six years ago, yesterday, I was unexpectedly let go from a job. And I think I've told this story before. I actually had a very, very strong prompting, premonition, whatever you want to call it. I knew the night before, somehow I knew that the change was coming the next day. Nobody told me, except something spoke to my soul and said, tomorrow it all changes. You need to be ready. And I carried all my stuff out off my desk just in case it was the weirdest thing. I never had anything quite like that before. And sure enough, when I was let go, um, you know, I I actually felt kind of comforted in that somehow the universe had sent me a message saying, be prepared. And one of the best parts of that experience, even though it was miserable to realize, okay, now I'm without employment. Now, now I've got to start to figure out, you know, what's, what's the next plan. It was the knowledge that uh, the door had closed behind me, definitely, but that somewhere another door was opening. And I was much more willing and more eager to seek out that new door that was opening than I was to stand there and yell at the one that just closed. Now, some would say, well, you were just in denial, Brian. That's all it was. You just were waiting for something positive to come because that was your state of mind. Well, whatever it was, it was the right way to approach it. It's very empowering. It's very calming. It doesn't mean everything's easy. But I recommend as other events unfold, we ought to take a similar attitude. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I just want to thank my sponsors, lifesavingfood.com as well as monticellocollege.org. I do appreciate everything they do to uh, help me keep the lights on. I don't ever think, I, I, I have no intention of, first of all, but I don't think I'm ever going to get rich doing this program. But anybody who helps me to uh, keep my mind on what I'm doing and not on, uh, oh boy, I better go find another job somewhere to, you know, help keep the wolves away from the door. I appreciate all of that help. I appreciate that consideration. And I know this doesn't come easy. Everybody, I think, is is feeling the pinch right now. So again, thanks to those of you who who make that possible. 
I want to go back here to J.B. Shirk's article about resolve to be undefeated. And I love this because he, he starts talking about a martial artist. And because I, I once was a jujitsu practitioner, I, I this really resonates with me. He says, among writer David Mamet's considerable achievements, he deftly addresses the warrior mindset in a number of his works. In Ronan, Spartan, and the television series The Unit, the master wordsmith delves into notions of honor, duty, perseverance, and sacrifice. One of his often overlooked gems contemplating these subjects, though, is Red Belt. It's a film about a jiu-jitsu instructor who teaches his students over and over, no matter the adversity, in combat or in life, there's always an action that will prevent defeat. Neutralizing any threat requires understanding the given circumstances, choosing the correct response, and executing the response faithfully. Mamet, who is changed in, who trained rather in mixed martial arts and reveals an undeniable respect for true warriors, drops philosophical pearls throughout the film that would resonate with any service member, law enforcement officer, veteran, or anyone else who has been or will be in harm's way. Things like, a man distracted is a man defeated. Or, there's always an escape. There's no situation that you could not turn to your advantage. Or, one rule, put the other guy down. Who imposes the terms of battle will impose the terms of the peace. You control yourself, you control your opponent. Or everything has a force, you embrace it or deflect it. Why oppose it? And I like this one. The best weapon in the world is a flashlight, so you can look deep into the other guy's eyes. Now with Red Belt, Mamet articulates not just a warrior code, but also a philosophy for living. No matter how daunting the circumstances, there is always a path forward. There's always an action that will redefine the nature of the fight. Or the re- yes, they redefine the nature of the fight. There's also an ava- always an available choice in how a battle proceeds. There is always a way to secure victory in the face of what seems like certain defeat. So he says, do not let yourself get distracted with nonsense. Never abandon your common sense. Accept the circumstances around you as they are and not as you would wish them to be. By the way, that is the key to survival in any survival situation. People who, uh, you know, get hopped up on hopium, well, maybe it's not that bad. The ship is listing pretty hard, but, you know, it's really not that bad. You know, they're the ones who stay on when it capsizes and then eventually drown. Accept it as it is. This is bad. I should probably get topside quick. Now, J.B. Shirk says, everywhere you go, spread light because your enemies find power in darkness. And these are all sage rules for both living a good life and finding secure footing when things don't go according to plan. And all of this brings to mind Confucius, Confucius rather, who observed more than 2,500 years ago, by three methods we may learn wisdom. First, by reflection, which is noblest. Second, by imitation, which is easiest. And third, by experience, which is the bitterest. Now, reflection, of course, is excruciatingly difficult. It takes time and patience and a willingness to abandon what we once thought certain when once thought certain rather when new knowledge upends deeply held truths by the way this is where most of us are today this is why this program exists it is by nature a solitary struggle and requires a person to question everything especially those things we've merely been told by others the wiser the person the more likely that person will admit to knowing very little Experience puts the flesh on wisdom's bones, but does so with much pain along the way. Before we can understand wily deception, we must first be wholly deceived. Before we, must, before we can grasp true love, we must endure heartbreak. Before we can honestly seek God's mercy, we must first grapple with despair. 
Experience helps us see through falsehoods at great personal cost, but ultimately prepares us for reflecting upon once hidden, sometimes unfathomable truths. Now, alongside that hard-fought space between experience and reflection lies imitation. And imitation as a means of gaining wisdom can be most cruel. It depends on possessing enough experience to know whom to imitate and engaging in enough reflection to know when to reject the examples of those we imitate when they behave unwisely. In this regard, when it's done correctly, it is not easy at all. Instead, it tends to put us in the position of imitating the loudest, the most popular, or most credentialed members of society, when none of those attributes connotes wisdom. The intelligence community says, trust us. But then those same spies also readily admit that they lie for a living. Politicians and bureaucrats claim to be public servants, but then demand the public obey every government mandate without protest. Corporate news media claim to pursue objective truth, but then unquestionably parrot the talking points of their government allies and corporate bosses. Medical doctors claim to follow the science, but then walk like lemmings off COVID-19's experimental vaccine cliff simply because government health bureaucrats demand they do so. Academics perceive their own academy as filled with society's most intellectually knowledgeable when in fact they have become so single-minded in their support of an insular, politically correct worldview and so quick to reject rigorous scrutiny or Socratic debate that they may actually be society's most indoctrinated group. Wherever you look, those most likely to say, trust us, believe us, imitate us, are precisely the ones spouting falsehoods as truth. Holy cow, there is so much wisdom in that sentence. So J.B. Shirk says, look, it should be no surprise that the world feels upside down today. Those we might normally imitate in better times are known liars. Our experiences leave us feeling deceived and abused. Our reflection informs us that we must upend the status quo to find salvation. Nobody ever said wisdom comes cheaply. As Mamet identifies in the warrior's ethos, we first understand our circumstances honestly, then find the correct response, and finally execute that response faithfully. The best weapon is a flashlight. Every situation can be turned to an advantage. There's always an escape. It's the warrior's path to victory. All right, I've got a link to this in my show notes. I hope that you will take the time to avail yourself of this. This essay deserves reading a couple of times. There's a lot to absorb here. There's a lot of meat on that bone, but I strongly recommend it. There's so much wisdom in what he's saying. And I'll give you a good example of what this looks like as far as, you know, someone being required to, to, uh, to stand firm in the face of people who are being absolutely unreasonable. Uh, I don't know if you're a fan of Jordan B. Peterson. Some people are, some people aren't. Frankly, I think the guy has a lot of wisdom. I think he he speaks plainly and is actually one of the better uh, sources of light and truth in our time. And now he is being called before the, uh, I think it's the Ontario College of Psychology, or anyway, the, the licensing body in Canada that uh, that licenses him to be able to practice psychology is actually calling him out and saying, you need to essentially undergo re-education because of unkind things you have said about uh, the Prime Minister, uh, Justin Trudeau. And and to his credit, Jordan B. Peterson has been, he has, has been relentless at calling out Trudeau's tyrannical, hypocritical, cowardly behavior as a head of state. I mean, it's he's been very good about it. 
but they, they seriously, it's, it's a show trial that they're going to bill him the cost for his own rehabilitation. You will pay a coach, you know, this much, and, you know, it's, you're going to have to reimburse the state for any costs, and you have to sign this confession. They wrote it like it's in first person. I hereby accept and acknowledge that, yes, I have behaved unprofessionally or appear to have behaved unprofessionally by saying mean things about uh, Trudeau or whatever. And, and Jordan B. Peterson is telling him, I'm not going to comply with this. Which is interesting because they will very likely strip him of his license and thereby his ability to practice or, I presume, to teach psychology in Canada. Now, fortunately, Jordan B. Peterson has, I don't know, millions of followers. I mean, he could probably survive very well on books and speaking fees and things like this. But he's a perfect example of that warrior mindset. In that he's not just going to roll over and bend the knee because, well, it'll make my life more comfortable. And if ever there was a time to stand up to tyrants, this is the time. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Ah, so much good stuff to choose from today. It's hard to know where to go next. All right, I think I'm going to jump on board with this one. Just because as you're watching the the news play out with, well, you know, the House of Representatives, why they haven't elected a speaker yet, and there's this back and forth. Oh, my gosh, Sean Hannity. When did that guy become such a swamp creature? Uh, he was questioning Lauren Boebert uh, from Colorado yesterday, and just, I, I, it's been a long time since I've listened to or seen anything from Hannity, and then I, I watched about a couple minutes of it and realized, oh, yeah, that's right. Just interrupting. You're not answering my question. You're not doing this. You're not doing that. He, he is he is the epitome of of what I aspire not to be. But uh, yeah, there's there's a real power struggle going on. And right now there are 20 people standing in the gap and refusing to vote for uh, Kevin McCarthy to be the House Speaker uh, simply because McCarthy, in their opinion, cannot be trusted to do the right thing. Given all of the capitulation and given all of the extra constitutional behavior on the part of Congress, just, you know, in the last couple of years, not to mention, you know, uh, for maybe a few generations before that. This is the time. This is do or die. Somebody's got to stand in the gap. And right now we've got 20 people who are effectively representing their uh, their constituents. And, of course, they're being held up as pariahs. How dare they do this to try to impose their will on the political pragmatists and so forth. But, uh, you know, conservatism is having some real serious problems. And I'm going to share with you an article from the Z-Man about willing accomplices. Why does the conservative movement founder so often? Well, it's, it's because they, they failed to stick to their principles. Here's how he explains it. He says, if one were looking for a reason why, for why the conservative movement failed so completely, you would be spoiled for choice. Most people would point to the fact that despite having billions of dollars and majority support on key issues, conservatives managed to conserve nothing. Others would point out that many of the people claiming to be conservative were more concerned about maintaining good relations with their friends on the left than advancing conservative policy. Often this is where you hear some form of the Hoffer quote about great causes becoming religions, corporations, or rackets. It's a great observation and certainly true, especially with regards to the conservative movement. Any system that produces a sanctimonious simpleton like David French 
has long since stopped being a serious political movement. Most of conservatism is a racket, while the rest is just a jobs program for philosophy majors. Now, while true, he says these are symptoms rather than causes. But his, his analysis is the real cause of conservative failure was the race issue. Once they conceded the moral high ground to the left over the issue of race, the right was forced to embrace the blank state and egalitarianism in, in order to make any sense of it. You cannot agree that unequal results are immoral if you also claim that Mother Nature does not distribute her gifts equally. You have, deni- you have to deny nature in order to embrace that mor- the moral claim. Once conservatives accepted the starting premise of the left, they condemned themselves to forever embracing the left's conclusions. You can see this in the fight of the anti-white pogroms called CRT and DEI. This recent National Review post claims that conservatives can win the race debate. That sounds good until you read the actual text of the post and see the secret formula for winning is another version of the internet meme, the conservative case for. So here are the key lines. Quote, we must see racial disparities where they exist and acknowledge racial trauma as real because for many Americans it is real. Responding to the trauma of, of racial discrimination by simply expressing a commitment to a race-neutral ideal is a bad move, end quote. In other words, the so-called conservatives have to accept the premise of the left. They see winning as proving to their masters on the left that they are properly trained on the issue of race. Now, the author of the piece is an interesting character. We can be sure that his ancestors did not arrive on the Mayflower. He's an example of what conservatives tell us is the new model American. His people arrived recently, and as if by magic, they're not only as American as everyone else, but now they have a duty to criticize the errors of your ancestors and explain how you can make things right. South Asians have embraced the skins game with a passion. Now, there's another name for this. Isaac Willour is a fine example of the ingrate American a new arrival who does nothing but lecture white people for not having done enough to make his stay comfortable. White Americans could be forgiven for wondering why in the hell they need to listen to this interloper about anything. Maybe instead of lecturing us about his ancestors, he should be thanking us for a life that the civilization of his ancestors could never provide to him. Putting that aside, once you concede that racial disparities require your attention and that they are the fault of white people, you sign on to whatever pogroms the left launches on white people. There can be no salvation for white people until those disparities are gone. But since that is an impossibility, the only choice left is a forever war on whiteness, which is a war on white people. This is the logical end of the conservative embrace of the blank slate. Once you concede that people are amorphous blobs that can be made into anything, the cause of of observable disparity shifts from the individual to society. Once you buy into the idea that all men are created equal, you concede that any observed inequality must be the result of some malevolent force in society. Once conservatives signed on to these two concepts, they committed themselves to a war on the majority population in the name of equality, equity, and justice. This is how conservatives went from Bill Buckley arguing with James Baldwin over the issue of civil rights to a world where recent arrivals lecture the white population about the crimes of their ancestors. After all, If all you have is the claim that all men are created equal, endowed with natural rights, what argument can you have against some guy getting off his flying carpet and claiming to be your equal? As your equal, does he not have the right to judge you and your ancestors? Now, the Z-man says, of course, this degenerate thinking pollutes everything. After all, how can one oppose open borders when you owe such a huge debt to the world? How can one question the economic arrangements when the world is counting on your sacrifice? 
How can you oppose community wrecking policies when you wanting to live a peaceful life among people like yourself is clearly white supremacy? Once the blood libel gets going, it becomes the universal weapon. This is why conservatism has been a failure in America. Once they signed off on the blank slate and egalitarianism, they had no way to dispute any of the claims made by the left. So they were reduced to being their unwilling accomplices. And he says eventually their masters lost patience. Now conservatives compete with one another to see who can be the most enthusiastic for the latest progressive fad. Conservatism is a shadow that cheers as the left flits from one cause to the next. Oh, I know that's harsh. That stings. That's going to leave a mark. But I'm not convinced the Z-Man is uh, out in left field on this one. I'll have a link to the essay. You can check that out for yourself. All right, let's take it to a, a slightly let's take it to a slightly higher place here. Becoming an independent thinker is an essential skill where fact checkers and algorithms are constantly trying to shape your opinions. Got a great article here from Annie Holmquist from her Substack about raising independent thinkers who pursue the truth. She says, once upon a time, Chicken Little's infamous phrase, the sky is falling, was the battle cry of alarm. Today, this classic signal of hysteria is in the process of being kicked to the curb, replaced by the new cry of fake news. So prevalent is the fear of fake news that some states are seeking to mandate media literacy instruction in the classroom. New Jersey is one of those states. The Hetchinger report notes, uh, explains rather, noting that media literacy instruction would extend to students in grades as young as kindergarten because experts say that many Americans, both young and old, lack the skills required to critically analyze information in a digital world. Now, Annie says, on its surface, such instruction seems like a worthy and neat adventure. Why not catch students young and teach them to correctly access, analyze, evaluate, create, and communicate information? But a look past the surface shows we should exercise caution when the idea of teaching media literacy arises. For such instruction may only serve to further stifle a child's ability to discern fact from fiction. The fact that schools want to teach media literacy to students in their early school years should be our first clue that such instruction isn't all it's cracked up to be. Giving students a head start in everything from sports to algebra is par for the course these days. But unfortunately, Head Start tactics like these create a response that's exactly opposite to the knowledge and discernment that schools are supposedly aiming for. This issue is raised by author Carl Oner in a book titled In Praise of Slowness, Challenging the Cult of Speed. Honoré, it's Honoré, sorry, I mispronounced his name, cites the work of Kathy Hirsch Pasek, a professor of child psychology at Philadelphia's Temple University, who studied two sets of preschoolers, one in a relaxed, play-based nursery school, the other in an academic one. Her findings show that children from the more relaxed, slower environment turned out less anxious, more eager to learn, and better able to think independently. Now, given this observation, it's natural to wonder whether the education that pushes children early on, such as media literacy courses in kindergarten, is likely to turn them into unthinking yes-men rather than people who carefully weigh a situation and then make up their own minds based on the evidence. If so, it isn't a surprise that the media literacy push is happening at such a young age, for the education system has repeatedly demonstrated that it has no room for children who think or for students who think independently. The goal of schooling is to teach conformity rather than independent thought. Former New York Teacher of the Year John Gatto once noted, enabling those in positions of authority to harness and manipulate a large labor force. Got to tap the brakes here because I'm coming up on a break myself. 
Annie Holmquist's article is linked in my show notes. I strongly recommend it. We'll come back and finish it off in the final segment. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. We're in the peak wrong think segment of the show. And I'm sharing with you an article by uh, Annie Holmquist on her Substack about raising independent thinkers, which is uh, not as easy as it sounds. In her article, she says, schools try to tell us that uh, they're not really about uh, trying to enable people in authority to harness and manipulate a large labor force. They tout the need for critical thinking. They extol their commitment to teaching the subject in the classroom. But she says the reality is schools never do much about critical thinking. Author Neil Postman tells us in his book, Building a Bridge to the 18th Century, how the past can improve our future. This is how he puts it. He says, quote, the first is that it's dangerous. Were we to allow, indeed encourage, our children to think critically, their questioning of constituted authority would almost certainly be one result. We might even say that critical thinking works to undermine the idea of education as a national resource, since a free-thinking populace might reject the goals of its nation-state and disturb the smooth functioning of its institutions. End quote. So Annie Holmquist says it's definitely true that children need to know how to process the massive amounts of information society subjects us to. But rather than push media literacy courses down their throats, which only gives lip service to critical thinking, why not teach them to be independent thinkers whose main goal is to pursue truth? And from here she goes into some tools to pursue truth. Teaching a child to pursue truth sounds almost impossible, since everyone seems to have their own truth these days. But there are a few simple steps we can follow in order to wade through life with discernment. Author Hannah Anderson explains this in her book, All That's Good, Recovering the Lost Art of Discernment. The first is to teach children that truth must be rooted in factual reality. Others will scrutinize our opinions, Anderson writes, and we must make sure they're based upon facts that are accessible to others so they themselves can weigh the evidence and understand how we came to our conclusions. The second is that we must train our children to weigh the many arguments swirling around us. Just because an alleged truth came from a person we trust doesn't mean that it's true. Each argument must be tested on its own merits. Finally, we must train children to evaluate the role their emotions play in their pursuit of truth. Failing to recognize emotions and keep them in check will lead us all astray, particularly when selecting our leaders. Anderson writes, quote, If we don't allow truth to pierce our internal process, we run the risk of letting our feelings about another person trump the reality of their, about their actions. We will either demonize them or be duped by them. Our aversion can keep us from embracing and enjoying the good things they have to offer, while unquestioning loyalty can blind us to falsehood and leave us open to manipulation. End quote. So Annie Holmquist says, yes, our children are, and will continue to be, bombarded with all types of information and ideas. But she says the answer isn't to stifle their discernment sensors, as media literally classes, literacy classes seem likely to do, but to teach them to be independent thinkers and seekers of the truth. By the way, that's something you can teach them by example. And it doesn't mean you have to teach them to be contrarian about everything, but just show them the value of questioning. Am I getting the full story here? Is there more to this that I'm not being told? Is there more that would actually change, you know, what, what is being told as the conclusion here? 
You watch, they'll pick up on it. I've seen it in my own kids' lives. And I don't, I don't consider myself a truth seeker par excellence, but I am pretty damn serious about going after the truth, regardless of where it takes me. And sometimes it takes me in some pretty uncomfortable places. All right, two other quick things I want to touch base on. Uh, one of these, I know this is gonna this is gonna seem like oh boy, here comes the wet blanket. But part of me wishes that I had paid much closer attention when my grandparents talked about living through the Great Depression. My grandparents have been gone for you know quarter of a century. That's uh, that's a long time that I've been without them. My mom is still around, and she remembers some things, but she was kind of on the tail end of the Great Depression, born in 1935. You know, she she saw some of those final years, but my grandparents lived through it. And I remember my aunt telling me after my grandmother passed away, and, you know, she, had, she passed away after my grandpa, um, they went and cleaned out her house, got it ready to sell, and she said it was so interesting because mom and dad never threw away anything. Every grocery bag they brought home, they carefully folded and stored. Now, they did not live in a clutter, okay? They didn't live like hoarders, but they didn't throw things out. Even broken shoelaces were carefully wound up and saved just in case they might be needed at some future time. Now, I don't know about you, but that speaks to me that uh, the Great Depression must have been quite a time to, to leave that habit with them lifelong. And again, you may say, well, I don't know, that just sounds like hoarding to me, but I think what, what they were exhibiting was something that was very common. You, didn't, you washed and reused your tinfoil. You, uh, you, know, you didn't throw things out because they might be useful. But I think here's the most important part. We are facing a very dramatic shift economically. And I don't say that with any sense of satisfaction of, you know, hey, you know, it's, you know this is the, I'm going to be right and we're all going to be poor. I'm just saying the, the, the economic trouble is part of the fourth turning that we're, we're in, and it's going to be epic. Do we have any kind of uh, resilience or mental toughness to deal with that? Because we have lived through a time, you and I, we've lived through times of easy credit, instant gratification. Kind of makes you wonder if uh, we are equipped to deal with depression-level living. I wonder if we. I wonder if we lack the moral toughness, and I'm, I'm including myself in this too. You know, I, I want to believe. You no, know, I'm resilient. You know, I, I can, I can adapt. You know, I can, I can think outside the box. I can find ways to to deal with it. But we are heading into the ending of a debt super cycle, and we will likely see a depression that will make the first Great Depression seem pretty small by comparison. That's how reality works. Most people are not prepared for this reality. So there's an article I've included. This is from uh, Clark Barnes. Clark says, when this depression, which has already started, gets momentum, it will overwhelm the plans of a society that's expecting to get things like Social Security, pensions, and payouts from retirement plans that they've paid into for many years. All of those things will disappear almost overnight and leave society gasping and stupefied over what to do. Their reactions will be to yell and scream and try to identify who to blame, but the only person they should blame is the one in the mirror. Now, he says, a lot of smart people have raised the alarm and done their best to warn the sleeping public, but those slumbering masses have ignored the warnings and hit the snooze button one more time. The masses, he says, do not understand economics. They don't want to understand economics, and they will pay dearly for that ignorance in the coming days. 
when real unemployment rate, the real unemployment rate rather becomes common knowledge as it increases substantially, people will be left to survive on what resources they have saved up outside the banking system that cannot be stolen by politicians and bankers. That's a key point here. The assets you have outside the system that can't be stolen from you with a few keystrokes on some computer. Now, to follow up on this, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave the rest of this to, to, to your uh, you know, curiosity if you want to explore. It's an excellent article, but it points to some really hard truths that uh, if you're serious about uh, trying to, to figure out solutions and a path forward, you've got to be willing to face some of these truths. There's also a great article on Zero Hedge. Unfortunately, I did not include this one in my show notes, but Ruben, thank you for sending this to me, uh, talking about uh, the digital currency that is about to be unveiled for us on the, uh, on the or in the wake, rather, of the uh, um, FTX uh, Bitcoin, or not Bitcoin, but cryptocurrency collapse. It's coming. A digital currency is coming. With it is going to come unprecedented control over your earning, your spending, every aspect of your financial life. I know that I may sound like Chicken Little for saying this, but if you are not actively looking for ways to exist and to thrive outside of the system, it's going to pull you in. So maybe this is a good time to be thinking about what is my alternate plan? I don't like to tell you this stuff. This, this doesn't bring me any satisfaction whatsoever. It's like, oh, man. I feel like the doctor who's like, oh, i got some bad news for you. But this is not something we're going to just wish away. It's not something that we can, can easily avoid. Lack of planning by society is going to make things much harder if it's allowed. So what would you do if everything you worked for for a lifetime is suddenly taken away? Do you have a plan to keep what you have? Do you have a plan to make money when you can't find a job? Do you have a way to take care of your family until things stabilize? Do you have a home you will not lose if the system breaks down? What do you do if electricity or fuel is too expensive to buy or maybe even not available to the general population? Those are the kind of questions you need to be asking yourself because you better have a good answer because your family's going to be asking them when the Greater Depression sets in. Now, the good news is we will make it through this. We are Americans, damn it. <laughs> and we will we will make things happen. But we're going to have to go through some tough times. Let's use those tough times to humble ourselves. Let's use them to seek divine guidance. Let's look out for one another. Let's resolve to be undefeated. This is The Brian Hyde Show.